This is our third Sunday going, sort of walking through the gospel on Mark. We're going to do sort of um, six Sundays before sort of Easter and then the six Sundays leading up to Easter and trying to divide sort of Mark in half. There's the half of Mark where Jesus is just sort of free to sort of move through the world as he pleases. And then Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's like, it's, it's funny because then that sets in motion that Jesus can't do that anymore. Once he's known for what he is, he sets his face towards Jerusalem, and that's where this journey goes from there. And so this, this morning we're looking at Mark 2 in the beginning of 3, sort of. And if you remember so far, if you've been here, is that the gospel of Mark starts with this, in the beginning, the good news of the gospel. In the beginning, and so there's this creation theme. And then Mark is also portraying that Jesus is pushed out to the desert to sort of deal with the devil and Satan. And so he goes out there. And then he comes back to Capernaum, which, which is where we found him with Bailey again on a different day. And he begins to heal people, and he begins to um, cast out demons. After that, we didn't do this one, as he touches a leper in the, in the preceding passages before we start where we are today. But so far, Jesus has touched diseased people to who to believe were contagious. He's um, dealt with demons, and he's uh, sort of moved in the world as a healing force. And what does him in is these conversations with scribes and Pharisees. Just interesting to think about is Jesus, you know, sort of can bind up demons, can go out to the desert and deal with the devil. But one of his, his things that shows up in this chapter, and this is only chapter two, the points of contention that Jesus will have throughout his ministry with the scribes and the Pharisees. You'll notice that, that all sort of of these five things that lead up to chapter three, where Jesus, where it says that then they went to plot to kill him, which is very fast. I mean, you're only in chapter three of Mark's gospel, and the truth is made bare that, the, that these people are going to bring Jesus to his, to his death. But this scenes that we have for us today, the three that we read and the two that we didn't, all sort of have these questioning. Like, it's like what Q&A is where Jesus gets into more trouble than anything else, when the people go, why do you guys do this? Why do you do that? And he begins to sort of rewrite things in many different ways. Now, one of the things that I think is, is sort of clear for us this morning is a lot of the things that Jesus is being asked about here are inner Jewish discussions. They're things that we don't quite worry about anymore. They're not, they're not if Jesus were walking the earth today, we would, wouldn't probably ask these same questions. But what I think is they're important questions for us to see the character of who Jesus is. Now, one of the things that I wanted to do when I set out to sort of help us grasp the gospel of Mark and its goodness and in its truth is to make Jesus a compelling figure again. You know, Jesus is somebody who people see and they see life and light in him and they follow him throughout the world. He heals, he speaks truth, he does uh, miraculous feedings. People fall in love with Jesus. People really like Jesus in the Gospels. He can be frustrating at times to the disciples and other, but Jesus is one who, who has this um, charismatic nature to them that people say, this is one I want to follow and be with. I think many days when, when we think about our lives as Christians, I know I'm guilty of this, is I think Jesus is Lord, so that's why I listen to what he has to say but that not that Jesus is true and good and beautiful. And so these passages, I think, if we really listen to them, help us show how you could see in a first century world, 
and for us today that Jesus is true and good and beautiful, that he brings about something which you would say he's worth following, he's worth going with, he's worth attaching ourselves to. Now, it should be pointed out that none of this holds. As conflict arises against Jesus, almost all these people abandon him. But it's still clear that the people who are caught up in who he is begin to see some truth there. And so the first question he sort of deals with, and, and actually before that, I'll just say one thing about the Son of Man reference, which occurs a couple times in this passage. Does anybody have a favorite thing that Son of Man means? My favorite is, if, if you just were filling in what the Son of Man f- means from the Psalms, it would be just a guy. What is, man, what is the Son of Man that you are mindful of him would be a very literal translation of verse 8, which is sort of all of us, is, is he's just a regular guy. But when, from what Brian read from the book of Daniel during worship, the Son of Man title carries this one who comes from heaven and who comes to earth and sets up in a kingdom that can never be extinguished. One of the questions when you read any of the Gospels that use the title Son of Man, Mark uses it maybe more than the others, is what does the Son of Man mean? Is Jesus saying that I am just the guy, or is he saying I am the figure who comes from heaven to set sort of my kingdom up on earth? I think it's helpful to think of both. Now, I'm not crazy about when we sort of change Scripture to make it more gender neutral. I understand why we do it, but sometimes it can be frustrating. There are areas where it makes more sense too, uh, where, where Paul is clearly talking about, when he says man, he's clearly talking about humanity. That makes sense. There are areas where it makes less sense. And one of the ones that I've recently sort of caught myself in is that there's a translation that translates son of man, the human one, which if you think about it, is probably a horrible translation of that phrase literally take Son of Man, make it to the human one. But as I've lived with that title, the human one, I think it helps capture the essence of both those sides of what Son of Man could mean. He is the human one, and in that way he is just human, but he is the one who models that faithfully for us. And in the same way, as this eschatological figure, he becomes the human one who comes to earth to set up a kingdom that can't be put out. I don't advise you only use one of those, but I found myself gaining new truths and insight from thinking about what would it mean if we translated son of man, the human one. All of them are good, but it is a challenging phrase. But here in in Mark, I think there's times where Jesus is using it to mean that I am the eschatological, the end times figure who's come to set my kingdom up on earth. And other times he's using it as I am the human, I'm the man, which is, I guess, now... See, I didn't even plan on that. If, there would have been a joke there if I had thought um, there's a, there's a, I won't go there. Um, it's funny, but it's not, it doesn't add anything to the sermon. Um, uh, but so the first question he's um, um, sort of confronted with is who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, this one is actually part of the sermon, so I didn't just uh, come up with this. Have, have you guys ever seen Caddyshack? There's, there's that great scene, and I'll, I'll just do it shortly, is that the caddy says he caddies for the Dalai Lama, and after the end of the game, the Dalai Lama says to him, uh, he says, hey, are we, is there going to be any tip here? Is there going to be any exchanges? And he says to the guy, he's sort of making fun of a younger caddy, he says, and do you know what he said to me? 
He said, unga chunga, unga chunga, unga chunga. And you know what that means? And, and Shelly, what does that mean? You said you saw the movie? That on your deathbed, you will achieve total enlightenment. And then the Bill Mary, Mill, Mary character goes, so I got that going for me. I spent so long trying to come up with an analogy of what Jesus is asking when he says, which is easier, to say that your sins are forgiven or to say to the lame man, to, to, the, to the sick man, to get up and walk? Because that's like one of those things, if you think about like on your deathbed, you'll achieve total enlightenment, it's very hard to find like quantification for. Like, it's very hard to see that, like, yes, he, we know that he's paid for caddying that day because on his deathbed, he can, will achieve total enlightenment. More so if I just said that to people when I ate out at a restaurant and said, there will be no exchange of money here, but here's what I, your sins are forgiven. Now, obviously, if it's true, that's a big deal. And so this, there's much ink has been spent on which is harder. The question that Jesus asked back, which is harder, to say that your sins are forgiven or to tell a lame man to get up and walk? Because the other one you have direct evidence of, right? If Jesus says to this guy, stand up and walk, then you either have seen it happen or you haven't seen it happen. But for somebody, a teacher to say that your sins are forgiven is very hard to say. And so which one is easier to do? People have spent years and years to millennium debating which one is actually he's asking for, but I think the obvious answer is both. One we clearly see, and the other we don't see. But the one to really forgive sins is obviously harder. But we don't see that. We see men get up and walk, and so it actually what happens here is this miracle sort of confirms what he's saying. Because you'll notice, and this is, this is weird, you have to slow down to read this passage instead of read it fast. When I read it fast, what I hear is, they open the roof, Jesus says, get up and walk, and they say, oh, why, why does your master teach, do this on the Sabbath? Which is actually the next story, or a couple stories from now. But what actually happens is, when this man who's lowered in through the roof on a bed that he can't get up from, the first thing Jesus says to him is, your sins are forgiven. Something I often forget when I read that passage. Now, these man's friends, he says, it says that Jesus sees their faith. And it's, it's sort of a plural. It could include the man on the mat, but it definitely includes his friends. He sees this faith and says that your sins are forgiven. This is where the question comes from. Why does your master do that? Why is he saying... Um, he can forgive sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, who, he, who can see what's in their hearts, and this is one of those great truths of Christianity, is that God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. And so that when Jesus is here on earth, he's able to, to sort of see what people are reasoning on their inside. And so he asks that question of which is easier for me to do, to pronounce the forgiveness of sins or to tell him to get up his mat and walk. And what happens is he tells the man after that to take up his mat and to walk. He creates this miracle of, of sort of a kind. And, and what's more sort of amazing about this is he, he um, has this human response to many of his miracles. He calls you to take up your mat and walk wasn't long before the church really started to look at how we spiritually 
are, are with our mats, and it's not our mats who got us. It's, um, it's not we who are carrying around our mats. It's we are captive to our mats, that we're captive to our beds, that we're captive to our sickness. And so for that to be healed, Jesus first has to say that your sins are forgiven to break the captivity to that. And then to take up your mat and walk is the process of moving on through that, to go into life. And so this first scene, Jesus sort of is announcing to them that the Son of Man, that he has the authority to forgive sins here on earth. The second story, which is interesting following the first, he has the ability to forgive uh, sins, is the calling of Levi. And now, Levi is a tax collector, and most of us are familiar that... um, one, in the America, we don't like tax collectors that much, I guess. Um, but in the, in the first century Israel, a tax collector would go to the government and say, okay, you want income for that bridge, right? You want income for that bridge when people cross it. And so for X number of, of dollars, we'll just use U.S. dollars, for $1,000 a year, I will collect income for you on it. And the government goes, okay, you're the tax collector for that, that sort of thing. And then what the tax collector has to do, obviously, is collect more than $1,000 for it to be worth it, right? He has to collect more than what um, he has promised. And so this is where tax collectors become some of the most hated people in this area, is that they're taking things that probably used to be free, and even if they weren't free, they, they sort of had like a pay-a-toll type thing. And what tax collectors do is actually get to set their own fee to take money from you for use. And you know what the government expects for it in a lot of cases. Imagine if we had a toll at the bridge here in town, uh, the new bridge, and it was like, okay, well, the state wants a dollar, but Matt got the contract and Matt wants $10. That doesn't seem fair. And you see how this abuse can multiply into these people becoming some of the most hated people in first century Israel that these tax collectors sort of magnify these taxes upon people. And so the Pharisees sort of rightly come to him and ask, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Tax collectors and sinners appears three times in that phrase and appears in the Gospel of Luke. And it seems like this other group of people, sinners, sinners are like people whose job it was to sin, one commentator said which I think is, is fascinating, is that like these people are so involved in sin, of course they hang out with tax collectors because tax collectors have money, and it's almost like there's tax collectors, that's a job, sinning is another job. Now what these sinners did, it's hard to, hard to say, but they're people who just sort of known as people whose job it is to just sin, to be a part of that thing. And so Jesus here, who's here to pronounce forgiveness of sins, decides to take his meals with these type of people. Now, if you're, this is a question that I think is probably more relatable to us. How does this make any sense? Jesus, who goes to synagogue, who, who's modeling faith for us, who is this rabbi who's collecting all these people in the world, uh, who denounces demons, takes food and meals with people who are tax collectors, and sinners. And not only that, in first century Israel, to share a meal with somebody is like to share your bed with them. Like it's a very intimate act. 
You'll notice in first century Israel, there's no like McDonald's where you're like, okay, well, let's just meet in a neutral place where this works out better. You have to meet in somebody's house. So Jesus actually goes into these houses. Now, for the Pharisees and for many of the people living with a sort of a Jewish mindset, sin and, and being a tax collector, being somebody who's ultimate sinner, is something that's contagious. To have meals with them is to pollute yourself and to pollute the air in the house. And you don't know how dirty. And, and remember, Jews have this sort of ritual clean thing. You just don't know how unclean you can be in that spot. I mean, we have hypochondriacs today, but imagine that like this person touched a dead person and you touch that person, then you're also unclean. That Jesus is surrounding himself with these people who are just very ritually unclean, that there is just no way you can walk into this place and come out still holy, still clean. Question that the Pharisees asked, I think is very important. It's very important for us today. At my last church, there was this conversation I had to lead. I led adult Sunday school once, and for some reason they had me lead it on the morning. And it's all older senior citizens. On the morning that uh, we were having a baby shower for a woman who was an addict and had had a child out of wedlock. And they were like, why would we have a baby shower for this woman? Isn't this endorsing her sin and her lifestyle? And I was like, well, first off, guys, I don't know if we really view ourselves as endorsing anybody's lifestyle. The only lifestyle we endorse is that of Jesus Christ. So I hope that we all know that whether it's me or the other pastor or somebody reading scripture, we're never endorsing their lifestyle. We only endorse the lifestyle of Jesus Christ. But I think they're asking the same question that that Jesus is being asked here. Why would we, good people, invite somebody who's on the periphery of our society in to have a baby shower? That just doesn't make any sense. And what Jesus, I think, is doing as you follow him through these meals is what he's saying is actually it's holiness that is contagious. That goodness and life is actually what's contagious. Which is totally, like, this is one of the things that most people won't admit is that we don't really know a lot about who the Pharisees were. But my sort of reading of them is they're the people you would want as your pastor, and your pastor is not supposed to go out to, to the Riviera with strippers. Like, your pastor is not supposed to take people who live in lifestyles of sin and depression and take advantage of people and take them out to, or have them into their house even worse. The Pharisees here, I think, are asking a very important question. What Jesus does when he turns this isn't just little news. This is huge news. That for the holy, to go into places with life and to share good news and to share meal is actually to make that space holy and not to make that space drag you down. For me, and this is, um, we were talking about a house church, why I don't do sermons with application. One of them is when we're singing, it's your breath in my, my lungs and I pour out my praise, it's like, Man, if I just spent one day thinking about that, captive to that, that would be enough for some holiness to take root in my life. But with this one, that Jesus came not for the strong, which would be the more literal translation, but for the sick, I don't know what else there is to say about that, because then he sets us to do the same. We... 21st century North American Christians, Christians throughout the ages, have a lot of pride in not being the sick. 
and not being the ones who need help. And yet Jesus is announcing to the Pharisees that the people attracted to me, this is where I think we capture some more of the uniqueness of who Christ is. The people attracted to me are people who sick. And as a physician, I come to heal sickness, not to make the strong stronger. Now, I generally sign up to be stronger where I'm stronger and, and uh, not weak in any area. But what Jesus announces for us to hear and to know is that when he comes to earth, the Son of Man comes to earth, it's for those who are sick, for the places of sickness in our lives, for the places of sickness in our world, so that he can heal it, so that he can transform it. Honestly, I don't think that's what I signed up for often when I became a Christian. I was, it was misexplained to me that my job wasn't to become one of the strong, healthy ones so that I could not need this sort of healing, but it was actually to be in the place where Christ can be the doctor of my soul so that through his spirit, I might be the doctor to others' souls with his power. It's big news, a big message. We skipped one of these sort of questions. This is the one about fasting. But there's this, this thing, and this sort of f- makes the middle section of what we hear today, is that new thing is happening. You don't put new wine in old wineskins. It captures a lot, I think. When I cut that one out, it was hard. But it was that, there, that Christ is announcing that this new thing is happening in this world and his presence and the last one is the Sabbath thing. That Jesus has, he was going through grain fields on the Sabbaths. And, and the Greek phrase for this is that disciples were almost sort of preparing the way ahead of him, which is an interesting just how the disciples us prepare the way for Jesus as we go in the world. But what they do on the way is they begin to pick some grains. And the question the Pharisees say is, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? This is part of, of this oral tradition. And, and Pharisees, like I said, who are more like pastors, set up fences around the law so that you know you're not going to break the law. So instead of saying, you know, you're supposed to rest on your Sabbath, they go, okay, well, you're not supposed to work. So you can take up to 70 steps, but you can't take 100 steps, right? They set up good patterns. I mean, this is like when people become Christians and we're like, well, here's some of the things you should probably start doing. Don't curse anymore. Um, you know, that's not, that's not a good thing. Um, uh, maybe stop going to the bar every night. Um, and all these things are part of being a Christian to some extent, like moving towards a more holy lifestyle. But Pharisees have this way of sort of like setting up this thing along the law. You know, um, many, many younger Christians went through this period where they, they broke all their, their secular CDs because listening to Third Eye Blind was somehow going to corrupt you into, into a life of sin. So not many people know who Third Eye Blind is, because if you did, that was a really funny joke. Um, uh, but that's the era it was happening, was, was sort of listening to that type of music. Would, and so they would break all their secular CDs. And that sometimes can seem like a good idea, but it's a very sort of pharisaic practice. And so what the Pharisees are saying is, you know, they had decided that it was sort of unlawful to even take a little bit of grain. If you didn't prepare ahead of time for the Sabbath, then you can't go out and get a little bit to eat. You're just not going to eat that day is sort of what they're saying. And so the question for Jesus is, why are your disciples sort of breaking what we all assume is common practice? 
Jesus responds back, and I don't want to talk about what he responds back with uh, about David. I, I talked to David and Kim about it before the service. He kind of mumbles a story, and it's unclear why, and there's a couple theories on why he does that. But the second thing he says is that the Sabbath um, is for man, not man for the Sabbath, and that the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. This comes into the next scene where he heals somebody with sort of a withered hand on the Sabbath as well. He says, what should you do? Should you kill or give life on the Sabbath? What Jesus represents on this sacred day and in this sacred time is the fulfillment of creation. I think in the modern world, we tend to think of miracles as breaking the laws of nature, whereas for the first century Jewish mind, miracles are the fulfillment of nature. So much so that they're the fulfillment of an unbroken nature. That so when Jesus heals and gathers people on the Sabbath and casts out demons, what he's actually doing is bringing creation back to where it was supposed to be. And there's a Jewish tradition for this that was active at this time, that the Sabbath would represent the fullness of time, the fullness of God being with us. And so what Jesus says is, I'm going to model that for you. Those who are sick on the Sabbath will be healed. Those who are on the hungry on the Sabbath will eat. Those who are captive to demons on the Sabbath will have those cast out because it represents the fullness of what the Sabbath is, represents the fullness of what sacred time is. And so Jesus' sort of Sabbath healing is not actually violating what the Sabbath is supposed to be, but actually fulfilling it. You can see how this is a humanizing tendency for Christ. And this, this is sort of the, 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 the last sort of moment of the sermon here for us today, is that all these stories tell us the shape of God when he comes to earth is one who humanizes people, who one who sees people. There's an African culture where to say hello is to say, I see you. And what Jesus does as he comes to earth is he sees people. That may seem like a little thing, but I think that's what's deeply attractive about Jesus is that what causes him to gather these herds of people, tons of people, is he's one who sees people. He's one who teaches all these things that are tearing you apart, these destructive forces are dehumanizing, and I come to bring life and to see you as the human that you are again. That our God, as he comes and takes shape on the earth, is one who doesn't see brokenness and despair when he looks at people, but he actually sees this way in which he as a doctor can be the healing of them, that he can bring life there, that he can restore those places. If you're familiar with the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, God is about restoring places. It's about bringing new creation to the world. And so what's it mean for us today to know that God is one who would see the world, to see people, to humanize them in where they are, to not make them pet projects, not to just make them feel bad for who they are, but brings their holiness in their life to places that are broken in an attempt to restore them. And not only that, as the Lord of the Sabbath represents the fullness of God's time, the filling of it. Let us pray.
Today, we've learned of the opposition your son faced. 